Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about The Waystation by Stephen King. This is chapter two of the novel The Gunslinger, which is the first novel in the Dark Tower series. I'm sure many of you are familiar <laughs> with this, but The Gunslinger was originally published serially in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction between 1978 and 1981. And we've made sure to read this chapter in an edition of the book that was printed prior to the revision of 2003. That revision did some retconning to bring the story in line with, you know, stuff that King thought up for the later books, you know, decades after this had already been, you know, in in print. And we've also compared this version of the text to the original magazine publication. And we'll talk about that stuff in two more episodes when we do our discussion. And really what I mean is Brandon has done that. And I'm going to ask him if there's anything worth talking about, but that's for two episodes from now anyway. And hey, also, we should say that this chapter was nominated by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. And then, of course, everyone else on Patreon voted for it and did so in droves. Uh, Everybody wanted us to do this, which is uh, really fun. That's always great when we're doing a story that we know our listeners are super, super interested in. This chapter is a lot of story, so we're going to spend three episodes on it. That's what we did for the first chapter as well. So this episode is going to recap the first numbered section, if you're reading along with us. And then the next episode, we'll finish the recap. There are uh, two more numbered sections, but the third one's very short. So we'll do both of those next time. And then the third episode will be the discussion episode. But before we get into any of that, we want to remind people that Next month, we're going to be holding our vote to determine what the next big Patreon bonus series we're going to do is. We talked about this in the 2021 Year in Review show, where uh, I revealed dramatically to Brandon the list that I had worked out with some of our Patreon supporters. And I'm going to just offer that again here as a refresher, let people know what it is that we're actually going to be voting for. And here they are in chronological order. So we've got one of the original Gothic novels. This is The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. We've got The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, the really classic wilderness horror novella. And then The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. And then The Tarn by China Mieville. Uh, I've got to say, Brandon, this is going to be a tough choice for our voters, I think. And I'm glad they're the ones doing it and not us. Yeah, I think we'd have an impossible time choosing between all these stories and we'd end up recording them all in a, in a type of frenzy and then have, you know, just, just be exhausted by the time we got to the end of it. So I'm glad we're getting our supporters in on this vote because I can't choose between any of these titles. And of course, we hope this will encourage some listeners who aren't yet with us on Patreon to, to join us now. So you've got an opportunity to have your say in what we're going to cover there. Of course, you'll also get immediate access to the bonus series that we're wrapping up right now, which is a series on H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which uh, we've had a ton of fun doing. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what listeners want us to do next. Yeah, The Mounds of Menace has been a hugely fun series for us to cover. And hey, so has this uh, Gunslinger series been working on. So maybe we should (laughs) jump into the way station. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if we weren't doing this already in this way, this could have been something that uh, appeared on that list. But here we are doing it now. So let's actually do it now. We open this chapter close in the point of view of Roland, the Gunslinger. He's on the move, and a nursery rhyme has been playing in his mind all day. It's a real earworm. He cannot get rid of it. 
And he knows why this nursery rhyme has occurred to him. He's been having a recurring dream. It's a dream about his childhood back in the castle and falling asleep by the window of many colors. And that's uh, that's actually what his nap times were like, not bedtime, because where he grew up, parents did not sing to their children in the dark. And so this dream he's having is, uh, and here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote, this dream he's having is about the heavy gray rain light that shivered into colors on the counterpane, which I just thought was an absolutely beautiful, descriptive line from King. Uh, and of course, the dream is also about Roland's mother singing to him. But of course, right? What is the rhyme? That's what we want to know here. Now, I'm just going to read this into the microphone. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. There is joy and also pain. But the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. Pretty plain, loony sane, the way of the world all will change, and all the ways remain the same. But if you're mad or only sane, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. We walk in love, but fly in chains, and the plains in Spain fall mainly in the rain. (laughs) And so, uh, at the end of this, I'm left wondering, what? (laughs) And so, Brandon, I think it's uh, it's your job here to answer that question. (laughs) What is going on here? What, What the heck is this nursery rhyme? Yeah, King, King is riffing here on the famous song from My Fair Lady, which, you know, is based on the George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion. It's a story of two men trying to transform a street woman into a lady. And at this point in the musical, My Fair Lady, they are trying to teach her proper diction and pronunciation using the phrase, the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. But in the gunslinger's world, this is a nursery rhyme about, I don't know, the constancy of weather or something. I'm not not quite (laughs) sure, but really, this nursery rhyme reminds me of the sentiment that's found fairly regularly in the Bible, that it rains on the just and unjust alike. But in this case, the concept of justice is replaced like with the concept of sanity. And uh, I think what's going on here on a craft level is making strange. Like the gunslinger's world is like our own, but whatever was uh, similar between our world and the gunslinger's once isn't quite in the way that we'd recognize. And that's going to be important in the whole series of the Dark Tower. But even we're going to see some of that in the story that we're going to get today. And automatically... Knowing this, I have questions, right? What does this tell us about Roland's world? We were speculating last time that you know there's a lot of hints that Roland's world is our world in the future, in some kind of uh, future in which an apocalypse has happened between you know us and and Roland, and maybe that's true. And if that's true, though, then right, this nursery rhyme is an adaptation of the, the the lines from the musical. And I immediately wonder, where did they change? Why did they change? What is the context in which, you know, Roland and his parents and perhaps, you know, his great grandparents and so on, you know, what did they think this nursery rhyme is about? And it has a real feel to me, like ring around the rosy, right? Which is this weird nursery rhyme that kids spin around in a circle and then, you know, while they're holding hands and then fall down. But the, the actual words of that nursery rhyme are in fact remembering something fairly horrific. And and this has that same kind of feeling to me. Yeah. You get that real punch at the end of it about the planes falling in the rain. And we don't know quite what that means or is referring to, or if it's an old event that somebody remembered in this nursery rhyme. But does Roland even know what a 
airplane is that would fall out of the sky in the rain. You know, it, it, it feels like a nonsense rhyme, but we can pick up meaning from the words here and, and really apply a totally different context than the one that Roland would know. And, and that, that's something that you see, especially in the later series in the Dark Tower books, the, the kind of pop culture references or cultural references that King uses. He uses them in a way to refer to a kind of darkness that underlines a lot of the popular culture that we consume. And uh, this is an instance of that. I mean, My Fair, My Fair Lady is a great musical, but it's, uh, it's kind of a dark story when you think about it. Right. I even was wondering about literacy in this world, because as you you, you point out or, or you know, in, imply anyway, right, is that we have hominins at work in this nursery rhyme where, you know, at the start, it's rain falling on plains as in like grasslands. But then that line at the end has switched planes with an AI to, you know, planes with an A and then the E at the end as in airplanes. But I wonder, you know, does Roland even know that that's what's happened? How literate Uh, is this world. And, you know, we're going to find out some more. We're going to get a flashback of his world. That's what the second recap episode will largely be about. So I'll I'll stop us (laughs) from going too far down this (laughs) hole because also we'll have an entire discussion episode for it. So let's get back into, you know, what's happening here. And what's actually happening in this scene is that Roland is walking, 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 walking relentlessly after the man in black. It's been 16 days since the events of Chapter 1, and Roland, at this point now, only vaguely remembers the homesteader and his raven. And in fact, he can't even remember the raven's name now. And that bothers him. But look, Roland is not in good shape. He's thirsty and hungry. He's just out here in the desert and his body is breaking down. And this is really how the nursery rhyme has even grabbed his mind. And now he stumbles and falls and he skins his hands And he looks at the blood, and then he gets up. And now he sees on the horizon two buildings. One is a stable. That's that's really clear just from the the outline of it. And the other appears to be some kind of house or, or maybe an inn. But now he sees what really matters, a person. And that person is the man in black. Roland draws his gun and he runs. He kicks down part of a fence and he shouts at the man in black, You're covered! You're covered! And then he sees him, really sees him. And the man in black is worn away to nothing. He's small and his hair has gone white. And uh, that's because this isn't actually the man in black. It's a kid. It's a boy wearing blue jeans. And Roland stumbles toward the stable for the the shade. And then when he's there, he just passes out. And and we get a section break here at this point. And so there's a... (laughs) You know, a lot happening in this opening scene, Brandon, but I want to make sure that we address something that I've been ignoring as I've done the the recap just to, you know, adapt this for radio, so to speak, which is to say that I have been calling the actor in this scene Roland, but King does not do that. It's only he. And I find that a strange choice, given that this was first published in a magazine and there's just no guarantee that people had actually read chapter one. That's a that's just a weird choice for me. Right. We know him as Roland because we're familiar with the broader text, but this story was published as a novella originally. So, I mean, there are references to the first novella. You know, there's reference to the high speech early on in the way station, which would tie it back to the last one. A few references to Devil Grass, the gunslinger himself, he's referred to, and the man in black. So, I mean, this story could really be read as a standalone 
even though it's part of the serial adventure that King is writing. So what King needs to do in this story is really reintroduce our protagonist, essentially. And what we have, once again, as we saw in the opening of The Gunslinger, is a man versus nature story. But in this case, we get a little backstory about where the character came from, uh, which it sounds like Roland came from a nice kind of home. But then we immediately wonder, you know, what would drive a person from that environment to face the one he's in now? And then we see that the gunslinger's madness, you know, his mind slipping, the single focus of his quest is something uh, that that occurs here to create a man versus self conflict in this chapter as well. You know, especially when the gunslinger realizes he's just about killed a boy because he just wants to be done with chasing this man in black. And that's a motif that we talked about in our coverage of the first chapter of this, uh, you know, short story or novella collection as well, this serial adventure. And so I think King is doing a great job of reintroducing this character to people who might be reading it for the first time. He slips references into this uh, chapter, this section, the way station that refer back to the first chapter in more explicit ways later on. So I think it really works overall. But yeah, you're right. We get the gunslinger, but it's not capitalized. And then a lot of he's. And I I don't even know if we learn Roland's name until maybe book two. I can't remember. Though we might have seen it in the last chapter. Well, at this point, yeah, no, we definitely know Roland's name from chapter one. And I guess that's why, to me, this seemed like a strange choice, right? King, at this point wants his readers to know this character's name and is assuming though, right, that half the readers of this piece in the magazine will not have read the one that came before, the story that came before. That's what struck me as strange is that he doesn't let these new readers know the name of the character until we're about halfway through, actually, uh, the, the way station story. Part of that is because King is reintroducing a new audience, perhaps, to this iconic character. And that's very important in these early pieces of the gunslinger, the Dark Tower works, is to have this iconic character go on these adventures. And then later on, he becomes pretty much known as Roland Deschain because he becomes more of a dramatic character. His He goes on a dramatic arc. There are things about his character that need to change in order to uh, complete his quest instead of just these series of adventures leading him to his ultimate destination. And that'll be a fun topic for when we have you know finished this entire book, really, to, to think about the way in which this functions as a novel, the way in which it functions as a series of related stories with this iconic character. <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of fun doing that because I think you and I are also really interested from our perspective as as hobbyist writers of of, of telling stories kind of exactly like this, right? I think you and I like this type of a story cycle, um, at least as much as we like novellas, or at least I do. So I'm looking forward to really dissecting that once we've you know, got a bigger sample size than we have just now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, I'm excited for that as well. All right. Well, so I ended there with uh, Roland running into the, the stable to hide. And now when he comes to, the boy is there. Uh, he's maybe about nine, Roland thinks. Uh, but anyway, this boy has some water. He's got it in a, a dented tin can, and Roland gulps it down. But it doesn't sit well because he's just gotten that dehydrated. And so he barfs. 
but he's going to be okay. Uh, he does get some water down eventually here, and uh, King is mostly done with gross body stuff, and so we can all get on with the story, and I'm really <laughs> minimizing how much barfing is actually happening here. Uh, but at any rate, the boy's name is John Chambers, but he goes by Jake. And right now, like in this scene, the scene from Jake's perspective is that Jake is hanging out with someone who passed out in a barn after charging at him you know, with a drawn gun, with a, a, a pistol. But... You know, the two of them, they clear that up. Uh, Roland explains that he thought Jake was somebody else and he's not really going to hurt him. And Jake asks, you mean the priest? And yeah, he's talking about the man in black who came by here, you know, recently, I guess. You know, Jake is not clear when that was because every day is the same here. But maybe it was about a week ago. And whenever it was, Jake was afraid of the man in black and just hid inside the house and he never spoke to him. But the man in black was here. He stayed for one night and then continued on. And he didn't even make a fire out here outside of the house. He just stopped here overnight. But, you know, the the man in black, right? That's one mystery. But it is not the only mystery here because uh, (laughs) there's also... A nine-year-old kid all alone in the middle of this desert, and that is weird. That needs some explaining. But the thing is, Jake doesn't have an explanation. He was just here, all alone. But he does have some hazy memories of someplace else, someplace that is not here. A place where statues sold clothes, and he walked to school, and... Well, that's it, actually. That's all he can remember. He knows there's more, and he can feel it, but it's just not there when he looks for it in his in his memories. But Roland can help. It turns out that gunslingers can do some kind of, you know, Vulcan mind meld thing and they can get your memories out of you. Uh, actually, it's it's some kind of hypnosis. Uh, Roland does some sleight of hand with a bullet that transfixes you and it works on Jake. And in the next section, we're going to switch points of view and we're going to learn more about this kid. We're going to learn more about Jake Chambers. There is some subtle magic in this world and it does get developed as the series continues, not just in the gunslinger, but, you know, throughout the whole series, just some uh, maybe super normal or supernatural abilities, uh, extra natural, uh, super heroic. I don't know. I don't know what the, exactly the way, right phrase is. <laughs> extra King natural is, is not a phrase we use enough, I don't think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this isn't the... Uh, the, the point is, this isn't the last of the uh, kind of magic we'll see in this story. Even in this one, well, the, the technology is kind of magic in some way. But there's also other sorts of, of strange paranormal stuff here, too. But it's really this section where King connects this story to the last one. Roland is thinking about Tull and the sort of trap that the man in black laid for him there. Because there's this boy now, and he's connected to the man in black. And now Jake is part of Roland's quest but hopefully not in the same way that Allie and the other townspeople from Tall were. You know, the gunslinger had to kill them all. <laughs> and, you know, but the, the gunslinger's miffed that Jake is here because he recognizes immediately that Jake isn't a part of this world, the world that has moved on. And so a kid shouldn't have to deal with gunslingers and men in black and the dying world. He shouldn't have to deal with the Roland's obsessive quest and the criminal amorality that inevitably follows. 
we get this line that is almost right out of Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, though none of this is what Kierkegaard had in mind <laughs> when he was writing his work. And we'll, we'll talk about that in our discussion. But we get a line that kind of evokes this concept of what's called the teleological suspension of the ethical, which is a sort of the idea that our normal sense of ethics can be suspended when we are tasked with pursuing an ultimate end. So this is what the gunslinger thinks here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from the text. Rape and murder and unspeakable practices, and all of them were for the good, the bloody good, for the myth, for the grail, for the tower. And it's the tower that's the ultimate end for Roland, the end that Roland is seeking. Everything he's doing is, as we learn in this section, ultimately to seek the tower not just to pursue the man in black. So whatever Roland is called upon to do in service of that endeavor is ultimately in Roland's mind for the sake of achieving some kind of end, whether or not it's good in and of itself. And so this is a really thorny concept. And as I said, one, we'll have some fun discussing in our discussion episode. Right, because this is not the only moral conundrum that we're gonna we're, we're gonna have in this uh, in this chapter here in the way station. No, certainly not. I also want to point out some of the stuff about Jake and and, and New York. I, I really appreciate the way that King makes strange the Statue of Liberty and also the social and fashion and even uh, like merchant customs surrounding school and shopping and things of that store. I mean, things are already strange to a boy, I think, thrown into a world already in progress. But this is all made stranger by the fact that the gunslinger has no reference for any of the things that Jake is talking about, like ties and, and sack lunches. Right. Of course, Roland has no frame of reference for anything like that. It's interesting, though, that Jake's kind of uh, amnesia here is is not actually just of his specific memories, but of also even just the entire context for the world that he vaguely remembers, a world that he used to live in. I don't know anything about amnesia as an actual medical condition, but I, I can say that this is definitely not how amnesia usually functions in literature anyway. Yeah, it certainly never functioned like this in any of the Lifetime movies that I've seen about the subject matter. <laughs> I was going to say soap operas, but I suppose it amounts to the same thing. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's go get some memories. This next section is three pages long. It's all italicized, which lets us know that this is a different point of view. And of course, that point of view is Jake's. This section is also in present tense rather than past tense. So it's a, you know, a big shift in tone from what we have just read. And here is where we learn something that, you know, Brandon and I have kind of just jumped into without any any warning to people who are maybe only hearing about this story for the first time here as we talk about it. But hey, Jake is from our world. Um, maybe not quite our world. At least, you know, he's from one very much like it. It's New York City, maybe the early 1960s. He's the only child of a wealthy family. His father is a television executive he barely knows, and his mother reads romance novels and has affairs. Mostly, Jake is cared for by other people, by people who are not his parents. Uh, they've got a maid of some sort who makes lunches for Jake. He goes to a private school. He's got a tutor in the summertime. And his mother gives him money to take a cab to and from school, but he chooses rather to walk so that he can keep that money, which he then uses to go bowling. But Jake is miserable. He doesn't have any friends. He only has acquaintances. He doesn't like his parents, and he's already internalized a real 
hatred for people like them, their entire class, like their socioeconomic class of people. And I have to say, this is some really strong wordsmithing and characterization from King here. My summary is not doing this section justice as, as you know, a type of really great writing craft. But I will continue to summarize here and just say that here is what is going to matter for the plot of The Gunslinger, right? Here's what's going to matter for figuring out why and, and also how Jake is here if he is really from our world, or at least from a place that is uh, different from this weird Western world of the gunslinger, Roland's world. So at this point in this italicized narrative, Jake is about to die. And the King is pretty gruesome about it. I'm not going to be, but still it's, it's, it's a disturbing bit of, of storytelling here. Jake is walking. Uh, he's walking instead of using the cab fare his mother left for him. And he's going by a department store and he's noticing the mannequins. And of course, right, these are the statues that sell things from his, uh, his fuzzy memory. And now he's standing on a street corner. He's waiting for the walk sign. It's a busy street. Cars are racing by. And someone, a man wearing black, pushes Jake into the street where he is hit and run over by a car. Jake dies, but it's it's not instant. And he sees the man in black and he knows at this moment, he knows sudden horror. And then he dies. You're right to point out the really excellent characterization that takes place in the section here. Jake Chambers has a lot of unconscious or maybe unreflective feelings about professional people. And, and I just want to say this as a total aside. When I was reading this series really heavily with a friend of mine in my like late teens and early 20s, I seem to remember, I mean, I read everything about it that I could. I seem to remember that Jake is named in part for John Jakes, the writer of like Civil War and Revolutionary War novels. I, I can't remember if that's the case or not. It feels right, but uh, don't quote me on it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, Jake is taken care of, but everything is done in this, uh, as King calls it, a professional manner, a professional capacity. His nannies care for him because they're paid to. His parents love him because they're his parents, but they're not too interested in him personally. And so Jake comes to hate not just people in his class or his parents' class, but something he calls professionalism or professional people. It's kind of difficult for me to parse out exactly what this means. So I think, Glenn, your sense of it being a class thing is pretty good. But it's hard for me to parse out exactly what this means, given that this kind of professionalism is sort of a, a theme of this story in a really weird way. So that'll be a, a topic for our discussion episode. But yeah, I really like how King characterizes Jake as someone on the on the cusp of self-knowing or self-understanding, but hasn't quite crossed that bridge yet. Now, there's also a reference here to a Kiss song playing in the background uh, while Jake is dying. And I would ask you, Glenn, what Kiss song you think is playing in the background of Jake's death, but I don't think either of us know the band well enough to pick one. Uh, so I'd love to hear what Kiss song would be the best needle drop for this scene, you know, if this was being filmed, if any of our listeners are, are, are Kiss fans. Yeah, this was definitely my experience. In fact, I, reading this, had the same question and then went, yeah, you know what? I can name band members of Kiss. I know the costumes. I could not 
I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard a single Kiss song. And it turns out, I don't think I actually have. I looked it up and was like, which is strange. It's not like I don't know music from the you know decades in which they were playing and, and certainly having hits. But I just have somehow, uh, you know, my experience of this band is as kind of a pop culture phenomenon, not as people who make music. Yeah, I, uh, I spent a good 40 minutes listening to Kiss songs around 1978. Well, between like 1974 and 1979 when this was published. Uh, none of them sounded like good needle drops to me, except for one, which wasn't a Kiss song. It was a Kiss cover of a Rolling Stones song called 2000 Man. And I thought that would be the perfect needle drop for the scene. I don't know if it works thematically, though. And I don't know if it, it was a radio hit uh, at the time either. And we also had a Beatles reference back in chapter one. So I don't know. We're at least making some headway in, in creating a, uh, a soundtrack for this book. <laughs> a very expensive soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about this more in the discussion. But I think that the word king is really looking for, but a word that actually hasn't been coined yet as he's writing this, though it's not far off, is yuppie. I think that's that's what King is meaning here. And uh, I'm interested in the name of this character as well. John Jakes is a, that's a name I am, like, you know, I've heard. I don't, I've not read anything by John Jakes, though I would like to think about that. And we'll do that for, uh, you know, uh, eventually we'll do some kind of wrap up episode on all of this when we're done in a few years. But for me, the name that I'm really interested in or intrigued by here is the last name of Jake. Chambers. I don't know how much of it's going to show up here in The Gunslinger, but my recollection of having read uh, the first four books of The Dark Tower is that eventually we're going to get uh, a lot more of King's broader mythos, what's often called King's Dominion, that has some overlaps some borrowings from H.P. Lovecraft and also perhaps other weird fiction writers like Robert W. Chambers. And uh, that's, that's really what I'm thinking of here when I see you know a New Yorker with the last name Chambers. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with a, a, a person who's being described in terms of a color. I mean, he's not the king in yellow, but he is the man in black, right? So I don't know. That, that's something, that's a lens through which I want to try to read this story uh, when we're all done. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I've been playing uh, a lot of Fallout 4 recently. I think this <laughs> is the last, you know, week I'll have time to play video games for a long time. And uh, that game there's a lot in that game that reminds me of the world that King has created here, this kind of post-technological world uh, that's kind of moved on in this sense due to nuclear fallout. That's not explicitly the case in in The Gunslinger, but it is the case in Fallout 4. Fallout 4 is full of Lovecraft references, full of Lovecraft references, and it's kind of very strange to see, of course, every time there, every time you come across a, a Lovecraft reference, you're just going to fight like a super powered beast or something like that. But uh, it, it, it's really interesting to me, and I wonder, I wonder as I've been playing that game if they've kind of taken some of that from King's conception of this uh, post apocalyptic world in his Dark Tower series. And I don't want to spoil anything for listeners who aren't familiar with this material, but. Uh, King's, I think King's understanding of an appreciation for Lovecraft's mythos is a lot more, a lot more specific than what you're describing with the, the Fallout <laughs> gaming franchise here. And uh, I'm looking forward to looking forward to that. Well, at this point here in the narrative, we are back in Roland's point of view. We're back to our, our standard narrative. We've left the italics and the present tense behind. And 
what we learn now is that what we have just read in the italics in the present tense is actually a kind of narration of an experience that Roland has been having. What's been happening here is that Jake went into this hypnotic state and then told Roland this story, but Roland is actually getting more than just Jake's words. There are also images and emotions that enter his mind. And one example of this is that Jake didn't actually tell Roland about his family, but Roland has sensed all of that anyway. And in fact, sensed it better than, than Jake himself can. So all of that business about hating professional people, that's not something that Jake even seems to be aware of himself, but yet it's still coming out through this type of uh, you know, weird fiction magic thing, the, the mind meld thing that is that is happening here. And Roland is upset and even disturbed by this experience. And it's because Jake has described a city that has never existed, or at least, you know, if it does, it exists only in the myth of prehistory. So that's all very weird, very unsettling for Roland. And also he's afraid of the implications here. And now he asks Jake, who's still in this trance, by the way, he asks Jake if he wants to have these memories back when he wakes up or if he wants to forget them again. And Jake wants to forget. Uh, and that's interesting. We should talk about that in the discussion episode. So Jake wants to forget and Roland arranges that and then sends him into a true sleep now. And at the end of this, Roland feels conflicted. He likes Jake but he knows that something is wrong about this boy. There's a, a deadly feeling about him, and he's also got the stink of predestination. But now while Jake sleeps, Roland looks around the way station. There's a stainless steel machine at the back of the stable. That's a water pump, but it's a huge water pump. It's one that must go incredibly deep in order to reach water in this part of the desert. And Frankly, it's a marvel that it is still here. And Roland wonders, you know, why didn't the people take it with them when they abandoned the station? And he thinks that the answer might be demons. Now, this pump has a control switch and Roland pushes the button that is marked on and the machine hums to life here. It pulls water up from the ground and then flushes it through a drain where it is then recirculated and, and finally poured into a container. And Roland gets three gallons of water this way before the machine shuts down. And Roland surmises that this machine must run on uh, what he calls an atomic slug. I guess, you know, meaning it's nuclear powered <laughs> because uh, there's not any electricity in the desert and any batteries that this might have had would have lost their charge a really long time ago. And so this experience as well really unsettles Roland. And now at this point, Roland thinks about his mission, right? He's wondering if the man in black is letting him catch up with him for some reason. And he also begins to think about his own childhood again, uh, though this here only briefly. Roland thinks of himself as the last of a green and warm-hued world, uh, a world that has moved on mercilessly. And then he falls asleep. So yeah, there's a, a ton of world building going on in this section and just uh, you know, really doubling down. King is really doubling down here on the surreal weirdness of all of these overlapping uh, types of worlds here. We've used surreal before to describe the world that King has invented for this story. But the weirdest thing for me was to come across... Uh, Polaris, the star, and Mars, which Roland sees as he looks up at the sky. And both of these names retain their name from our world. 
And it's just so adds this extra sense of weirdness about the world that the gunslinger inhabits. Like, are they aware of Mars the same way they're aware of the rain in Spain staying mainly in the plane? Like, what is the what is the history here that allows them to to keep the planet and star names from our world, which are all rooted in a deep history? It's, it's very strange. That really threw me to see uh, these names in the text. Right. And and we know from the first chapter that language here in this world is is different, right? I don't think there's any real sense that the language of this story, which is to say English, is actually the language that Roland is speaking. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe that's something that gets fleshed out later. But we know that there is something else called a high speech. We're going to get more of that in this chapter as well. And so... You know, we know that there's been language change, and so just the idea that you know Mars is still Mars at this point, and and you know not not coming from something else that that's inherently that's inherently interesting. It, it really is. I, I also really like the way King emphasizes Roland's concern about catching the man in black. It really serves the story well here. It creates tension for us as readers because. We suspect that once Roland meets the man in black, uh, we'll have our showdown or confrontation, and then that will be the end of the story uh, in some sense. That's the main conflict. We know Roland wants to get to the Dark Tower, but the real conflict, the man versus man conflict, is drawn from the upcoming or expected confrontation between Roland and the man in black. And if we like these stories, which I think we do, I do a lot. We don't want them to end. So King is doing something really neat here, I think, on a technical level by creating this iconic character and letting the readers know that the end of the man in black might also be the end of the stories about our hero in, in some sense. There's not a vast rogues gallery here like in Batman <laughs> or something where if it's not a Joker story, we have 30 other great villains for Batman to confront. So, yeah, I feel really uneasy personally when I read about the man in black slowing down so Roland can catch up with him because I like these stories and I don't want the narrative momentum to be sucked out of them. You just characterize this as a you know a person versus person story, which is true in the sense that we know that there's our protagonist Roland, and then there's uh, an antagonist, the Man in Black. But actually, they aren't really doing anything with each other yet, right? It's not r really functioning as a person versus person story, even as King is telling us that that's what type of story we're in. We're actually getting here, certainly in this chapter. A, a, a person versus nature story, right? And Roland's, you know, it's Roland versus the desert here. And a little bit later, it's going to be Roland and Jake versus the desert. But then we're also getting, a, you know, a person versus self story here in this moment, this moment of, of inner conflict, right? So the man in black is actually only serving as a kind of goal here, an objective. He's not really functioning as an actual antagonist, even though he's clearly being labeled as such. He's just the goal that Roland, the protagonist, can have this self-doubt concerning so that we get a kind of inner conflict here. It's really brilliant storytelling device. It's a really brilliant storytelling device here because it leaves us with this feeling that we're in one type of story. Well, actually, King is doing a lot of sleight of hand and telling us an entirely different kind of story. And that, I think, actually goes a long way to create a lot of this surreal effect here, this kind of unsettling effect of what is this world? Because it's going hand in hand with, wait, what type of story are we even in? 
we we encountered this even in the last chapter of this book and talked about it a lot in our in our discussion episode because it is a brilliant technical choice of kings and i i just think he's you know a master of the short story form in a way that he doesn't get as much credit for as he does for uh you know his big thick and horror novels about every man and to the end of the world you know that's the stand guys for the for the record <laughs> <laughs> Right. This book is, uh, it's having his cake and eating it too, right? It's the uh, first in a breathtaking series is a novel, but is also actually a collection of short stories. So I don't, I don't know if King is having it uh, both ways or having his cake and eating it too, but I certainly am as a reader and uh, I, I, I approve wholeheartedly. <laughs> well, we're nearing the end of, uh, of this particular part here. We're nearing the end of our episode today. It's a little later and Roland and Jake are talking. Roland is going to leave in the morning. Jake is going to have to come with him. He cannot be left here. Roland is interested in the food situation, and Jake explains that, yeah, there's uh, there's not much left. But there is a cellar, but he has not wanted to go into it, so he doesn't know what's in there, what, what stores might be in there. We'll have more on that later. Jake also has questions about Roland's business with the man in black. And of course, right, we do too, we the readers. And Roland explains that he's not necessarily trying to kill the man in black, though it may come to that. What's happening here is that Roland needs to make the man in black tell him something and also maybe take him someplace. And that someplace is a tower. But that's all we get for now. The next morning, it's time to leave, but not before Roland loots the cellar. He goes down and of course it's, it's gross. It has a nauseating swampy smell. There are disturbingly large spiders. Uh, many of them are mutated. They've got eyes on stalks or maybe too many legs. So I don't know, are they even technically spiders at this point? But I don't know. That's maybe a moot point here, but (laughs) there are some canned goods down here. And so, you know, it's worth it to go into this place. But there's also a groaning down here. And that's the real heart of this scene, the real point of this scene. There is something behind the foundation. It's a demon. And Roland uses here, uses that high speech in order to command this demon to speak. And now the demon speaks in the voice of Alice. That's the woman who was his lover in Tall back in the first chapter of this book. And the demon warns him, Go slow past the drawers, gunslinger. While you travel with the boy, the man in black travels with your soul in his pocket. And that's it. That's all the demon is going to say. And now it's time to go. It's time to start walking across the desert and towards the mountains. It's time to get back to chasing after the man in black. Jake carries some of their water, and it doesn't slow them down at all, even though he's only nine years old. They walk all day, they camp at night, they pass obvious signs of the man in black, mostly campfires. And then, after a few days, Roland thinks he can even see a fire far off in the distance when they make their own camp for the night. They're drawing closer, that's clear. But now, Roland is sure that the man in black wants to be caught for some reason. A few days into their journey now, Jake stumbles in the heat of the afternoon, and Roland makes them take a break. And while they drink water, Roland tells Jake a little bit about his own childhood. He grew up in a walled city, and there was an evil man there. Not the man in black, but someone who's related to him. In fact, they may even have been half-brothers. This evil man was named Martin, and he was a wizard. You know, like Merlin. And now Roland checks that Merlin is a reference that Jake understands, and of course he does. He knows about Merlin and Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, just like we do. 
But Roland doesn't actually continue his story here because this was actually all a ruse of sorts. While he's been talking, he's actually been using a bullet to hypnotize Jake the way that he did previously. And so, yeah, now Jake is fast asleep, recovering here. But even though he doesn't continue telling his story to Jake, Roland continues to think about it. He continues to think about his childhood home, about Cuthbert and Court and the falcon named David and Martin and his own mother. And that's where we end chapter one. Yeah, that is the end of chapter one. I don't have too much to point out here, but we might have to eventually speculate about the nature of demons in this world, like are they the result of nuclear fallout, like the mutated spiders, or is something more paranormal going on here? Why do they respond to the high speech? What is the high speech? Uh, so many questions are raised by the introduction of this strange element in the story. It's, it's nuts. It is nuts. I even was struggling to figure out just even the the spatial nature of what's happening, right? There's a crack in the foundation, there's sand pouring through, and then behind that is the demon. So yeah, what's the physicality of this demon or, or lack of it, right? That's a question that I've got about this. A lot of metaphysical questions about what's happening in this world for sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing we should say is that that Roland also takes the jawbone of the demon for reasons that are unknown, but uh, I don't know. We'll maybe draw a parallel to something that occurs later in the story and see what we can make of it. Uh, At the end here, King also leans into the moral grayness of the gunslinger's character. When Jake asks Roland if the man in black is bad, Roland says, well, that depends on where you're standing. So maybe the man in black is on his own quest, serving a different ultimate end from the gunslinger's. Of course, you know, like we know the man in black is truly villainous, even if we find some of Roland's own attitudes and actions unsavory or unethical, we haven't come across that in this chapter, but he's thought about it a lot. And finally, at the end of this chapter, the gunslinger thinks of Jake as having a calm and professional reservoir of will. And as we've already seen, professional is really a loaded word in this novella, and it's something that Jake hates. So King is complicating something here. Uh, this idea of professionalism, which again is really hard for me to parse out, but maybe we'll make some sense of this theme as the story continues. Right. I think we tend certainly in our world, at least as we use it on, you know, resumes, which of course are, I don't know, the most deceitful thing that's ever been, ever been invented, right? <laughs> but uh, we tend to use professional, right? People say, I'm a professional, you know, meaning I've got some specific type of training and that I take the work that I do seriously and try to do a good job of it. And I don't know if that's what King is meaning here. Uh, certainly it's not the way that he's talking about the, the the father, about Jake's father. And I don't know if that's really what he means here by Jake either, but that might actually be a way that we could describe Roland. Oh, it totally is. And that is, uh, that is going to be fruit for our discussion episode. But for you listeners, you'll have to wait two episodes to get there because we have one more big recap to do to cover the rest of this chapter. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. If you have strong feelings about what our next bonus series should be, or if you just want access to the current bonus series on At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, now is a great time to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And next time, as Brandon says, we'll be back to finish recapping The Waystation, and then after that, we'll have a discussion episode. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>